Well, that's kind of sobering, so um, let me see if I can lighten things a little bit, lighten the mood a little bit. I want to tell you about one of my favorite movies. In the movie <laughs> Ghostbusters, the 1984 edition, I didn't have a TV, and um, when I got off work, I would drive to the mall and I would watch the um, the last of the matinees, and so I watched it, I don't know, a couple of dozen times, I think. So, so I watched Ghostbusters a lot, and I got to the point where I could quote all the lines, and maybe some of you who have seen it can remember this sequence. Uh, this is about halfway through. The Ghostbusters have been busily catching ghosts, and the reason they're catching ghosts is because New York City is on the verge of a great big paranormal event. And as things come to a head, the Ghostbusters are taken to the mayor's office, and uh, one of the Ghostbusters says to the mayor, this city faces a disaster of biblical proportions. And the mayor says, what do you mean Biblical. And another Ghostbuster chimes in. He says, what he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. And then the other Ghostbusters all begin saying things. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. (laughs) So I don't think all of that's in the the Bible, but... um, But it raises the question, what do we mean biblical? Like the mayor, we ask the question, what do we mean biblical? What do we mean when we come across the passages like the ones we heard today? What do we mean by biblical? We're in a series, um, uh, we're going to wrap it up next week. We're in a series called Questions. We're looking at some of the most challenging questions that the Christian faith has been asked. And, and uh, what we found is that, is that um, they, they used to be impertinent, and now they're not because people don't feel impertinent anymore. But um, what we're finding is they're actually pretty good questions. So we began by looking at the question of the virtuous heathen. What happens to people who never heard about Jesus if they've lived a good life? And the answer we heard is that God has plans for them, but God won't let us off the hook. He says, my plans involve you. So he says, you do what I've told you to do, and I'll take care of the virtuous heathens. So so God doesn't let us separate that out and say, well, you take care of it, then God. We also talked about truth claims, and we saw how in, in the universe um, there are competing truth claims, and essentially everybody is like somebody who's gro- a blind man who's groping along the side of an elephant trying to figure out what it is. But they're blind, and they don't know for sure. But the problem is we're all like blind men groping along along the side of an elephant. There is nobody who can stand off to one side and with clear vision say, hey, it's an elephant, you fools. So we are all trying to relate to one another and say, look, I get that for you it seems more like, you know, that you're, you're playing with the, t- the tusk and it seems like a big sharp pointy thing. But for me, it seems like a big rough wall because I'm, I'm poking along the side of the elephant. So we have respect for people who have different perspectives, but at the same time, we hold to what we know to be true. Last week we looked at faith and we asked the question, why is faith a virtue? And the reason is because faith is related to hope. And if you have no hope, then you don't have to have any faith. But if you have a hope, if you have a great hope like the Mardens we heard about today, if you're one of those those Christians who has a hope for a different world or a different person, then Faith is what spans the gap, and faith is the arena where God does his work. Sometimes he does it by changing us, and sometimes he does it simply by inspiring us to change ourselves. But faith is the arena in which God works. So we looked at that last week, and today we're going to talk about wrath. We're going to talk about all those troublesome passages in the Old Testament. And we come back to the mayor. What do we mean biblical? Excuse me.
Because it's not all jokes. Today is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. This fellow right here is named John Mott. In 1900, he was the president of something called the the Student Volunteer Movement for Foreign Missions. And he wrote something in which he proposed that this would be the generation in which the entire world was evangelized, that, that he set the goal for that organization, that in 1900, they would begin the evangelization of the world in their own generation. And it really didn't work out the way he had hoped because of World War I. People came back from World War I. This nation, this, this war fought between, between Christian nations with unparalleled savagery, with, with uh, trench warfare and gas warfare. Uh, it introduced words like shell shock into our vocabulary. And people came home from that war and they said, if Christians can do that to one another, then I don't want any part of it. So what do we make of a God who countenances violence? What do we make sense of what do we make, how do we make sense of the Old Testament passages, particularly if we have lived through the 20th century and we don't believe that there will be a war that ends war? How do we make sense of it? And that brings us to our question today. How can anyone worship a tyrannical, bloodthirsty God like the ones depicted in the pages of the Old Testament? Now, if you stop and think that through, there's an easy answer, which is a bad answer. The easy answer is, well, if there is a bloodthirsty, tyrannical God like the one in the Old Testament, then you'd better worship him. I mean, just, you'd better, right? Now, that's an easy answer, but it's not, it's not actually the correct answer. And in fact, Christians have rejected it um, down through the years. We don't believe that. But we do believe that we cannot require explanations from God or Frankly, that we're competent to judge one if he gave us one. This is from, this is my summary of, uh, John Calvin wrote this in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, we deny that he is liable to render an account. God is not liable to us to explain what he does. And we also deny that we are competent judges to pronounce judgment in this cause according to our own understanding. Calvin rejects the idea that God is just a law unto himself and can do whatever he wants. He can be arbitrary, he can be wrathful, he can be, he can be um, uh, happy one day and sad one day. He can treat you differently based on his own, his own mood. He denies that, but he says at the same time, we are not capable of judging an explanation if God were to offer one. And yet God does offer one. God offers us um, information about himself. Um, so we're going to see some of that. Um, but, uh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. To close, to close, um, this out, um, we see this throughout the Old Testament. I'm gonna try and concentrate mostly on the Old Testament in today's message because that's where the question is focused. The Old Testament God. In the Old Testament, uh, Job has endured unspeakable troubles in his life. He's just had, he's just had the most miserable thing and on, on top of that, religious people came to him and said, it's all your fault. And he knew it wasn't his fault and if we the readers know it wasn't his fault. So Job has, has dealt with an incredible hardship, and at the end, God speaks to him and says, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? He says, do you understand why I'm doing this? Uh, God doesn't give an account, even to Job, who has suffered so greatly. He says instead, God says to him, will you discredit my justice and condemn me to prove you are right? We know he's right. But God says, you cannot discredit my justice to prove it. So, we cannot require an explanation from God or judge one. So, 
we have to begin, we have to begin with some humility that we're going to be groping around. We're still, we're still facing that elephant. We're groping around trying to make sense of the God that is revealed in the Old Testament. And uh, to do that, we need to read the Hebrew scriptures. And to read the Hebrew scriptures, we need to read them responsibly. And that means that we have to look carefully at what they were written to communicate. We can't simply cherry-pick a verse we don't like. You know, you probably met a Christian who's done this before. But we can't go cherry-picking verses and say, say, see, you know, you know, you have to do what I want you to do. So, so we're going to read the Hebrew Scriptures um, responsibly. And what I mean specifically in the context of this question is we need to ask the question, how did this story function in the community that handed it down? The, there are writings in the Old Testament that go back 1,500 or even 2,000 years before the time of Christ. So it's an incredibly old book, and it was handed down by generation after generation after generation. And they had some motivation. What was the motivation? What was the motivation that they had to preserve these stories down through the ages? Why not just sweep it under the rug? Why not just, just kind of say, well, you know, God was having a bad day that day. Why don't we just... Why don't we forget about all that and we'll just kind of focus on the good good things, right? Why did they preserve these stories? So we're going to look at some of them and see if we can figure that out. We heard this passage earlier. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, God speaks to, uh, to uh, Moses and says, when the Lord hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. He uses a technical word here that means you must, um, it's, it's a word used for sacrifices. It means you have to burn it completely. There can be nothing left of it. So um, you must completely destroy them. And he goes on and says, make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. So there's, there's a question right there. What am I going to do? Am I going to destroy them or am I going to intermarry with them? You know, there's, it's an odd, it's an odd thing to add, right? I've just told you to destroy this person. And then I say, and by the way, don't marry them. So, you know, which is it? So, so there, there's some, there's some arguing within the text. What is actually going on here? We can, we can have that question in the back of my mind, our mind as we read this. But let's actually look at some other passages that shed some light on it. So we, um, um, in, it, later on in Joshua, um, as, as, the, as the people of God move in to this land that God is, is bringing them into, and they, they destroy the first city, which is Jericho, and then they go to the second city, which is Ai, a city named Ai. And um, when, they, when, they, um, when they fight there, they lose the battle. And the reason is because somebody has stolen some plunder and kept it for himself. And God says to Joshua, he says, Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they've not only stolen them, but they've lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. So God says, I saw what you did. And because of that, I'm not going to support you in your this this holy war you're, you're carrying out. I'm not going to support you because you're not doing what I told you. You are profiting from this war in a way that I didn't give you the authority to do so. He says, uh, that is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. 36 Israelite soldiers were killed in this battle because because um, of this person who got greedy and stole the, the loot instead of putting it to um, putting it to the fire. So God, God is saying, you didn't do what I told you. He goes, um, uh, later on, another chapter later, Joshua um, encounters this group of people, the Gibeonites, and the Israelites examined their food, but they did not consult the Lord. They didn't go to God and say, what should we do with these people? Then Joshua made a peace treaty with them. 
and guaranteed their safety, and the leaders of the community ratified the agreement with a binding oath. Okay. And then famously, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, who was from Egypt, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. Famously, 300 wives and 700 concubines. He loved a lot of foreign women. So putting these three things together, what was it that the Israelites were told not to do? They were told to destroy them utterly, not to take them, not to use, you know, you don't get to loot. You don't get to loot. You don't get to make treaties, and you don't get to have intermarriage. But we see over and over and over again throughout the, throughout the, the stories in the, in the Bible, we read that that's exactly what Israel did. They stole the, the, the property for themselves. They didn't put it up to the fire. They, um, they intermarried and they made treaties over and over again. So what the, what the stories tell of, oh, uh, in the, in the story of, um, Solomon, I forgot this part. Um, it, <laughs> It's actually amusing. It says, it says Solomon married these people. And then in case we forgot, the writer says, the Lord had clearly instructed the people, you must not marry them. The, the writer of the Bible knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, the, the stories, the different, the different stories in the Bible, they know exactly what they're doing. They are highlighting Israel's disobedience and God's faithfulness. The purpose of those stories is not to tell a lesson about here's how you should conduct a war. The purpose of the stories is to say that even though God gave very clear instructions, Israel failed to do so. Israel failed to do what God told them to do. So the first thing is if we're going to look at the the stories in the Old Testament, we need to read them responsibly and we need to understand how they functioned in the community of faith. The purpose of the of the Hebrew scriptures was not to tell you how to carry out a war. It was to show you that even though you will do what God says wrong or fail to do it completely, God is nevertheless merciful and faithful. We see this over and over again. Um, the Psalms recount this at great length. And the prophet Micah uh, sums it up this way. God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. And that is the only reason you descendants of Jacob, you Israelites, are not already destroyed. God says, God says the purpose of all those stories is to remind people of his mercy in the face of their disobedience. But that doesn't address, I mean, that, that, that explains why we have the stories at all. Why are the stories there? They're not a manual for how to do a war. They are a lesson in God's faithfulness. But that still leaves the stories. What do we do with the stories? If you've ever listened to the Sam Harris podcast, you'll hear him use the phrase, talk about Iron Age barbarism. That what these stories are is just an example of Iron Age barbarism. And there may be some truth to that, but I would tell him that judging another culture by the norms of your own is imperialism. And I would ask this question, what do you think your great-grandchildren will think about your morals? Do you think that they will look at the way that you, you believe, the things you believe today about, about sexuality or about justice, uh, about inclusivity, about racism, do you think that people in a hundred years will look at you and say you were a paragon? But you would say, but that's not fair. I was a paragon within my own culture. And it wouldn't be fair for them to judge you in some other context. So judging a culture by the norms of our own is imperialism. 
And I'm going to give you an example. This is a famous example. We've heard this before. In the book of um, Exodus, it says, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And today that sounds barbaric. People, people have accidents. People, you know, it was a, the heat of the moment. There was a crime of passion. It would be barbaric to render a, an eye for an eye or a life for a life. But we misread this because in the context, this is found, this, this lesson is found not only in our own scriptures, but it's found throughout ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, uh, in, in other cultures of the, of the ancient Near East, we see the same principle, which was actually uh, a limitation. It was saying you cannot go on a vendetta forever in response to an insult. You cannot have a blood feud that lasts for ten generations because of something somebody did. You have to draw an end to it. So if somebody takes an eye, then you may take their eye, period. That's the end. If somebody knocks out a tooth, then you may knock out a tooth, period. That's the end. Now, we can understand that that was put in there by those standards then as as a limitation on violence. And yet, at the same time, we are tempted to look at it imperialistically and say that they should have had better morals the way we do. So... What I want to do is I want to look at some examples because I believe that there are many things we can iron, we can admire from an Iron Age Israelite culture. So I think that there are things we can admire, <clears throat> aspects of Iron Age Israelite culture we can admire. So I want to begin with this one. Um, God says to Moses, I am aware of their suffering. I have come down to rescue them from the power of Egyptians to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. The whole reason Joshua was leading the people through the through the the, um, the land of Israel and uh, conquering those cities is because God had seen the suffering of people who were in bondage. So uh, the Old Testament speaks of a God who is aware of what's going on on earth and is moved to action by it. That we we see in the Old Testament a picture the Israelites somehow uh, unlike. Uh, ancient cultures generally did, they had a picture of a God who was moved to compassion by the suffering of people here on earth. And not only that, but acted, acted to liberate them from their suffering. So we see that um, in the Exodus story. But was it just Israel? Was he just liked Israel? Well, God specifically says otherwise. He asks through the prophet Amos, he says, are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? Asks the Lord. I brought Israel out of Egypt, yes, but I also brought the Philistines from Crete and led the Arameans out of Kir. God says, I am a God for the whole world, and the same care I have for you, I extend to others. So this ancient Iron Age culture had a vision of a God who was not an ethno-nationalist, a God who actually cared about everybody equally, not simply this one tribe. There's another, there's another story that's worth looking at. Um, in the story of, this is a, one of the stories from the, um, the, the lost ark, the, the ark of the covenant. Um, and in it, Israel loses a battle. They were, they were getting complacent because they could, they could go win any battle that they fought against the Philistines. They lost a battle and they kind of phoned it in and they lost bad. And they said, oh wait, I know the problem. They said, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? And then they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle, it will save us from our enemies. The Israelites say God is a tool we can keep in a box 
And whenever we get into trouble, we can simply invoke the God. We can bring that, that lucky rabbit's foot with us into battle. And God explicitly tells them that they can't do that. God, God fails to come and then explains to a prophet that you can't do that. He's not a lucky rabbit's foot. You don't get to pick the wars and say, we'll bring God into this. Instead, God says, I'll tell you when and where and how you can fight. And that's the end of it. So God is not a lucky rabbit's foot. God is not a talisman. And then, of course, the passage we heard, a very disturbing passage, where, where God orders Saul to kill everybody in this entire city, to conquer these people and then kill everyone. And Saul doesn't do that. We heard explicitly, Saul, Saul uh, only, only destroys the things that are worthless or of low quality. And then everything else he keeps. And then he goes off and starts erecting statues to himself about what a great, what a great king he is. And God sends, sends uh, Samuel to him. When Samuel finally found him, because he's been running off setting up statues, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. And this great, this great question, he says, huh, well then what is all the bleating of sheep that I'm hearing? Because Samuel knows that he has been disobedient. That there is in this, this idea a principle, you know, war is an ugly thing. And we can, we can, there, there's a whole tradition about whether or not there's such a thing as a just war, and we could explore that some other day. But there is at least here a lesson that says whether or not war is ever just, there is an idea that war is not a profit center. That you should not be able to profit from your war. That you don't pay the troops with loot. You don't profit from violence. You don't get to carry off the sheep and the cattle. So in an Iron Age culture, there may be some things we, we blink at or maybe even uh, shy away from, but there are so many things to admire in this Iron Age culture. But perhaps the best is this, the vision of the prophets. Over and over again, we see a vision that the time will come when God will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. The Lord will mediate between people and will settle disputes between strong nations, that the God, God will take care of this. God, the ultimate diplomat, God will bring an end to violence. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation or train for war anymore. If that's Iron Age barbarism, we could use more of it today. We could use a picture of the possibility of an end to violence. But we're not left with that. Because this is not our book. Ultimately, we have to take it seriously. We have to look responsibly to see what God does reveal in the Old Testament. But Christians see the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ. For us to make sense of anything in the Old Testament, we have to begin with the person of Jesus Christ, who taught his disciples that he is all through the Old Testament. And so we have to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ. And what we see there is that Jesus sets us free to become a community characterized by love. That whatever the Old Testament teaches, we are not bound by it. In the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. Jesus Christ is a liberator. He made us a kingdom of priests for God, his Father. All glory and power to him forever. Jesus is a liberator. Paul says to the Galatians, So Christ has truly set us free, and since he has, 
make sure you don't stay, that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Ultimately, no one can come to you and say, here's the way you should behave because look, I found this thing in, in Leviticus and it says to destroy it completely or whatever. Christ has set us free from the law. We're not required to do anything in the, the, the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus specifically uses an example. He says, you've heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, but I'm telling you something new. I'm telling you something new. That no longer applies. Instead, here's what you should do. Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Jesus says, I have suspended the old law. I have fulfilled it completely, and now I'm suspending it for you. I'm giving you new instructions. Jesus sets us free to become a community characterized by love. Famously, Jesus says during his um, uh, in the upper room the night before he's arrested, he says, I am giving you now a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not our ability to destroy a city, not our ability to put people to the sword, but our love for one another. Jesus says, this is the new covenant that I have made with you. And then finally, there is this. Jesus says that the Old Testament reveals that as the Old Testament reveals God, so does he. So there is some mysterious way, and it is a mystery. People like John Calvin, Martin Luther, the great thinkers of the Christian movement have wrestled with the question, how can a God that is revealed perfectly in Jesus also be the Old Testament bloody God? And it is ultimately a mystery. There are different theories, and we could we could go into those, but in, in context, probably the simplest thing is to say it is a mystery. That there are things that we would simply say, well, that was Iron Age barbarism. And not all of the Old Testament is Iron Age barbarism. But maybe there is some. But we have to look at it as Christians by saying that ultimately the same God that Jesus reveals is the God of the Old Testament. So, Jesus says, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? For if you'd really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we didn't have Jesus, we might look at the Old Testament and say it is simply a book of Iron Age barbarism. But Jesus reveals you And he assures us that you are one God yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, help us to understand. Help us to uh, read those stories, to understand how they functioned in the community of faith. And help us to understand what they tell us uh, even before Jesus about how we can treat our enemies, how you love um, people um, of all nations and all ethnicities, how you um, are a God who acts to liberate people from injustice. Help us to see what is good and help us, Lord, to understand the parts that we do not. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.